Hello, this is Dr. Paul Cottrell, and I'm going to be doing a overview of my new book that's coming out soon called The Genomic Revolution. So this book has about 11 chapters, and the topics that it goes over are the following. Advantages and drawbacks of next-generation sequencing genomic influences on behavior, the paradox, the privacy paradox, potential benefits and drawbacks to direct to consumer genetic testing, advantages and limitations of genomic-wide association studies, genetically modified foods, genetic and ethical considerations of prenatal screening, implications of epigenetic studies, genomic science and the judicial system, influences that genomic studies have on race and ethnicity, and the conclusion is the advancements in precision medicine. So this book will be available online at three locations, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and my website, the-studio-reykjavik.com. So what I'd like to do is go over just, just a, a mean highlight of what each of the chapters will cover. So chapter one, advantages and drawbacks of next generation sequencing. This basically goes over um, the throughput, the cost, um, some of the technical advancements that have taken place in processing DNA sequences. Uh, the Sanger method was a uh, method that uh, sequenced the, the, the a DNA sequence, but it took a long time, um, one nucleotide at a time, while uh, there was parallel processing in, or is parallel processing in, the, in next generation methods. So it goes over that. Genomic influences on behavior. Um, as, we f as we dive into association studies of genes and what certain mutations are taking place, there are different types of mutations in, in, the, in the genome. And depending on where those mutations are, they can be very benign or can be um, of a pathogenic uh, state. And we are starting to notice that certain behaviors uh, have certain genetic associations. So that's what that chapter goes over. The privacy paradox. Um, this is talking about the positive and negative effects of information through studying the genome and privacy issues and how um, um, it can be used negatively and positively in the medical field. Uh, for example, we could, we all could give our DNA and put, be put in a large database. Um, but what happens with that data? How much of that data should be 
provided, how much of the discoveries from that data should be provided to the ones that are giving their DNA into the database? Uh, do you want to know if you have a disease or not, or that you will get a disease? And there is um, a lot of variables involved in, in diseases. It's not just the DNA. It's also epigenetic. It's environmental. Uh, it's stress levels. So one could be predisposed to a certain disease on, on a uh, genetic level, or what they call a makeup level, um, but never actually get the disease because of the multifactorial component to to uh, pathology. Next chapter is potential benefits and drawbacks to direct to consumer genetic testing. As you know, there's a lot of things going on today that's available, like in uh, like Ancestry.com uh, type uh, genetic testing. Uh, 23andMe is a very popular one, but there are others where uh, you provide saliva samples or some more advanced ones or maybe blood samples and DNA tests are or sequencing is, is provided. And there's two main, main um, this more consumer level genetic testing, not the laboratory or uh, uh, clinical testing, but this more direct to consumer testing um, is focused on where are you from, the ethnicities, um, the uh, some basic possibilities of diseases. So it discusses, you know, because of the, the lower cost to be able to do these sequences, it's now being marketed to the public. The public, as you know, and this kind of ties into the privacy paradox, a perfect example is Facebook, all right? We provide free data to a social network that ends up building an AI for advertising. Well, there may be nefarious things that go on when you provide your DNA data into a database uh, discovery may be taking place, uh, medical discovery may be taking place, but th these companies need to increase their revenue streams. So just the simple $150 or whatever it is to sequence your DNA and get your results, one, you have to question the authenticity of the results because of laboratory practices or just interpretations. Um, there's a lot to it. That's one, one issue with direct to consumer genetic testing. It's just the validity of the, of, of the sequencing, the results. But as these companies have to increase their growth, their revenues, they're reaching out and doing other things. And it just came out, it's not in my book, but it just came out that 23andMe is uh, moving towards 
a, um, a more app-oriented um, health study. So they have, I think it's around 3 million people. It could be 1 million, but let's just say it's 3 million people in their database. They can ask, they have the history of these individuals, they have the, the genetic, they have their genome of these 3 million individuals. So they're doing an obesity study and they are asking individuals to, to, to participate and curtail their diet in such a way where they can see if there are uh, certain genes that are tied to obesity. Now, at, on the face of it, um, and having people opt in uh, to this type of research will shed light on associations of genes and obesity. And maybe the different makeups between ethnicities. So on, at the face of it, it sounds like a great idea, but this, this um, will probably lead to, well, this opens up a whole new set of products that they could provide to their customers. They do a genetic, they take this study, they find out which genes are more prevalent in obesity patients. They market to those individuals to curtail their diet based on this. So one, the negative is, is that there is this genetic determ determinism or biological determinism, which we know, you know is a slippery slope in eugenics. But there, there's the positive side of being able to try to curtail these diseases. That's a simple one where the individual could just change their diet or their exercise regime and may be able to curtail or prevent obesity. But this data will eventually go into more serious diseases and uh, they'll use these databases to market or sell this information to pharmaceutical companies. So there's, there's some potential issues with privacy and just an over-reliant, the mar marketing uh, strategy for some of these companies is just an over-reliance to, to advertising to the, the public. Um, advantages, the next chapter is advantages and limitations of GWAS, which is genomic wide association studies. So basically this will go over the, the what you can do in a GWAS study is look at the whole genome and through um, association charts, it will scan all of the genes based on a large population of controls who don't have the disease and um, the sample, which has to be large, that 
does have the disease. And it will be scanning through the genes that seem to be associated with the actual disease. Now there are very few diseases that it's just one gene that's mutated. You know, either a single polymorphism, which is just one nucleotide base change, um, or more complicated ones, which is copy number variant. There's transposons, there's a reverse transposons, there's um, different types of mutations. But there are very few that are just one or two gene related. They're multiple gene related. So it's hard to, you know, it's just an association. It's not causational. Once they have this chart that says, okay, X disease seems to be associated with these 150 genes, then they can go in more, in more detail with those genes and fine tune to see um, in different databases if those genes are associated with those types of diseases or uh, specifically what is going on. Uh, it, because of the, the dynamicness of the, the genome and chromosomal territories, the topographical um, uh, communication that's going on with the genome, you could have inter and intra chromosomal transcription within the nucleus. So this adds to the, the uh, complexity on top of the epigenetics. So I go over that a little bit. Gen genetically modified foods. Well, you know, as we know, because of the advancements in science, we can modify our staples, you know, for example, corn is a perfect example, genetically modified corn. And there's an argument where, you know, it makes sense to make these crops more resistant to, to, from insects or more resistant to crops, uh, to uh, droughts or, um, you know, certain low levels of of nutrients in the soil or add certain types of vitamins to help nations that have low um, or have a deficiency in a certain uh, set of vitamins like vitamin C or vitamin A put into rice for example so again on the face of it there is this positive aspect to helping uh, individuals or nations that have deficiencies um, either during the growing process or because we need more yield because there's more people or because of vitamin deficiencies. Some of these vitamin deficiencies early on may cause eye diseases, blindness, and, and development diseases, mental, mental development diseases. So on the face of it is, it's good. It's, it's a positive social change. But 
problem comes in is some of these genetically modified foods because of the power of the um, of capitalism of trying to corner a market Monsanto's has created created genetically modified food that does not have a seed so you have to go to them for the seed you know typically a farmer would buy seed they would grow crops and they would save some of the crops for the next season to grow because they could take the seeds from those but these are seedless so one on a metaphysical level is that there these these crops aren't part of the natural progression of nature you have to it's artificial in a way where you have to go to the company that designed the seed to buy the next year's seed so it it uh, corners the market uh, what happens when they go out of business or what happens when the genetics of that particular um, uh, crop somehow mutates or somehow gets into the wild type and there's a hybrid and it makes the wild type less um, um, less productive you know through fertilization and stuff like this that there's more there's more mutations on the re reproductive cycle where it affects yield so and there's a there's a lot of debate about this um, from how far do should we go away from the wild type and make these specialized genetically modified foods some researchers are saying that eating some of this stuff actually may cause some diseases now let's take this from a just the average person's point of view if the body evolves in an environment right um, that is that that is relatively slow yes evolution can have accelerated periods and decelerated periods but on average it's a relatively slow process compared to what's going on in a fast-paced environment in in the lab if our biochemistry and our, our digestion developed in an environment over millions and millions of years what sort of things are happening when we speed up the evolutionary process and provide genetically modified foods that may be too advanced for our actual digestion? What diseases may it cause? Or does it cause any? This is an unknown topic. The hypothesis is that, is there, this is the alternative hypothesis, that there is differences between the digestion of these genetically modified foods and pathogenesis. Um, the null hypothesis would say that there isn't. So it's a big debate and 
I personally prefer not to eat genetically modified food. But then there's legal aspects to this where some countries will not label the food. So how would you know it's genetically modified? So the consumer has to become more and more aware of the, of the actual uh, problems. So the next chapter is about genetics and ethical considerations of prenatal screening. So this is basically, you know, the idea of designer babies. You know, it's the beginnings of the designer baby. You know, a lot of the prenatal screening, you know, early on was about, you know, well, do we have, you know, does this child have a trisomy, you know, three chromosomes instead of two chromosomes? Or is there some sort of um, um, abnormality at a genetic level by doing karyotyping or doing some sequencing where this child is going to be um, mentally retarded? And then the parents decide to have an abortion or not. Um, but it can go even further where if there is an association between genetics in a certain region and intelligence or eye color and stuff like this that when do you say that the prenatal screening um, is too much and you're trying to design your baby uh, that's one ethical consideration to consider the other is is that again because of the multi-factors that are involved in genetic testing and their association to the actual disease that just because someone may have three-fourths of the of the the predisposition for the disease doesn't mean that they get it they may even have a hundred percent but they may get it and may get it later in life so what is some of the psychological aspects let's say they have a gene for schizophrenia um, they have the genomic uh, makeup of schizophrenia but never get schizophrenia but they're told at a young age that they have this issue um, that they're they may get it you know do they have sociological or psychological issues with this that's you know something to consider Impl uh, implications of epigenetic studies now this kind of ties into what I was saying before it's not just the sequence there's methylation there is uh, chromosomes kind of, DNA wraps around histones. And there's a lot of biochemistry that go, goes on with this. There's the, um, the methylization at, uh, C, uh, at C and at uh, cytosine. And so you may have these islands, CG islands that are highly methylated in the human genome. And when they're methylated, they don't allow for transcription on top of the deacetylation at the uh, histone level. So depending on the makeup of this, of this methylization and deacetylation, um, it will allow for or not allow for certain transcriptions to take place. Perfect example is the genome of cancer. Okay, If you have a tumor suppressor gene and it's highly methylated, then you're not going to be able to transcribe the proteins to prevent the tumor. So you end up getting cancer. Um, 
if you have a oncogene that is not suppressed, then you know, so it's demethylated, then it will end up getting cancer or can get cancer. So um, there's an added complexity to realizing that it's not just the genomic sequence, but also the epigenetics of the individual. And that the epigenetics is hereditary, you know, there is a hereditaryness to it, um, but it doesn't have to be, and it can change. There, there, it, so this is where a lot of people are thinking, you know, life extension is, is possible, is maybe if you can change some of the epigenetics. Of an individual. Genomic studies in the judicial system. This part of my research I didn't like too much. Um, it be, the reason is, is it's very dystopic. Uh, the reason why it's dystopic is, is that there's two, 1984, two big brother. This idea that people should be in a database and uh, forensics can be done to to uh, uh, you know, solve certain crimes and stuff like that, but there it kind of negates uh, the rights of individuals of unwarranted search and seizure, and I think it's a bigger question. It's not so much can DNA be used for forensics, but there is this kind of like. manufactured consent, as Noam Chomsky would say, in certain TV shows, you know, like uh, police shows or forensic shows or like FBI type shows on TV, and also news, uh, like magazine news type shows, like 60 Minutes or Nightline or something like that, Dateline I think it's called. Um, where people that watch this stuff all the time, they get all interested, oh wow, they can solve this one crime, there's, you know, there's suspense and all this, and through blood samples they find out it was the second cousin of whatever, you know, it's kind of like Clue, you know, the game Clue, you know, who, who did the murder and with what weapon. So it kind of sparks the imagination of of individuals and I, I think some people would actually gravitate for less civil rights and move towards this this uh, surveillance um, because they would say well yeah you know I want to be protected I want that that individual off the street if you can use science to to prove it the problem comes in is, is that there's also individuals that could be um, wrongfully pursued because of their uh, genetic makeup. Remember what we said about the behavior. Yes, you can have these databases, um, but is it ethical or is it right to um, build a whole database of the whole society? So if a crime is committed, they can just run that DNA and know for sure who, who it was based on these 13 loci's which if you match at a thirteen, at the thirteen loci level, it's a very low probability that it's wrong. 
Um, so the accuracy is very right and very high, and it allows for people that are wrongfully put into prison um, to be exonerated. But there is this component of the surveillance state. How secure is that DNA? And if you have certain diseases and they find out or certain genetics that that is pre that has a predisposition to to certain types of crime um, you know violent crime or you know maybe even you know they'll find out that there is the uh, thief gene or something like that that it's like minority report well you have a thief gene so we have to watch you and our ai will watch you more and more so don't do anything wrong. So I see this as a problem. So I, I take it from the perspective that it's this judicial thing um, may be too much of a surveillance state. And it's always the police or the judicial system um, wants to have more tools to s solve crime. But there is a certain point, a certain threshold where it's too surveilling on the, on the citizen and there's not enough civil liberties. The next chapter is about influences that genomic studies have on race and ethnicity. Now, you know, we've been hearing in the news about the differences of races, all right? And it's interesting because of my pre-medical background at Fordham where I had to take a sociology class as part of the pre-med, pre-medicine curriculum. And, you know, parts of it were interesting. But what I'm starting to notice with, with uh, the current zeitgeist, it's, it's this idea that race and ethnicity is is fluid, um, especially race, and that there's no genetic predisposition. But we do know through to through research that certain ethnicities, certain races, and depending on the domain that you work in like the, the biological domain, I don't see the difference between race and ethnicity, but at the sociological end, there is a difference. Um, that there is the, the, the ones that work in the science domain will say that there is a difference in, in the way certain pharmaceuticals are administered and their actual efficacy rates between, let's say, black males and white males. There's a difference. Um, if you see the phenotype of an individual to be radically different than, the, than another individual, then obviously the genetics are different. The, the epigenetics is different. So that means that their, their association to, let's say, heart disease or arteriosclerosis could be different than another race, so not to, to 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 not to pay homage to, to this, 
may not allow you to fully understand the differences and how certain populations react to certain types of medication or certain diseases. And that if you have one population, one type of population or, or ethnicity or, or race that doesn't seem to be getting a certain type of disease, there might be something there that we could learn from to help understand what is causing the disease in other races or ethnicities. Uh, part of it may be diet, part of it might be climate, part of it might be genetics. There's, there's a lot of factors here. So by not, by not approaching the problem as that there are differences through the diversity, then we will misdiscover. Now you will have social justice warriors, sociologists and stuff like this, that have a tendency to try to um, say, well, that's gonna lead to um, um, racial divide and that will lead to eugenics. So there's, there, you know, there are issues in, in this domain in terms of what, you know, how these genomic studies are made and what are the social implications to this question? Is there a difference between races? Um, there, there's, there, there's nothing wrong for asking equality. Um, there's nothing wrong with pursuing equality. There's, there should be no, um, we, we shouldn't look down on a certain population because of their racial makeup. But this idea that we're not different at a genetic level um, doesn't prove well in 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 what's going on in at the sequence at the sequence level the DNA sequence level. We are different, but through that difference, that diversity, we will understand path, different types of pathology, and there may be something that is produced in one race, a protein. A, uh, a T cell or something in the immune system that other races may not have that would help with the disease. So embracing that di this diversity will help us advance science. But you will have racists out there saying, well, that means there is biological determinism and you know and you know one is better than the other which is a false interpretation or a, a fallacy of, of what the data is actually saying. The last chapter is about precision medicine. And this is kind of what is available today and what will be available in the future. Precision medicine is this idea that if you understand your epigenetic, genomic, proteomic, all the omics um, in your in for you that it's possible to understand the uniqueness of those sequences or those, of, of those transcriptions or translations and the efficacy of treating certain types of pathology 
we know that there isn't one type of cancer. In layman terms, you know, oh, someone has cancer, but that's a very big umbrella statement. Um, there is many types, different types of lung cancer, um, you know, bone cancer, leukemia, so there's blood cancers, there's brain cancers, there's skin cancers, right? But even if you have one of these, there are many subs subsets. And over time, those subsets actually increase. And the reason for this is, is that the DNA, uh, we know that cancer cells mutate and divide rapidly. And as they're dividing, they, there's a lot of instability in the particular cell's genome. And as it breaks down and, and there's more uh, uh, copy number variants that are taking place and more unbalanced translocations and stuff like this, that there are in circular DNA and effects of, of the centromeres and the telomeres and all this, that it begets other um, mutations in the progeny. So over time, you have more and more different genomes of that cancer. And this is part of the reason why certain pharmaceuticals certain chemotherapies or certain therapies in general will work early on, but then there's cells left over that are somewhat immune to that type of treatment and they start to proliferate and there's no, no um, either the body's too weak to take another regime of chemotherapy or there's just not chemotherapy drugs out there to fight those types of mutations. So there's this thought that you cocktail this uh, cancer treatment, f fight it, you know, in three or four different ways, you know, maybe one, you know, the cancer has um, produces certain types of proteins on its, on its surface to evade the immune system. Well, what if you could target some of those surface proteins um, that are unique to the cancer cell. Problem is, is that it, they becomes, in some cancers, some of these signals are actually what, that it evades the, um, um, the MHCs, the major uh, MHCs are uh, major histone complexes and these MHCs um, kind of help with self so you don't have your immune system attacking yourself so they've evaded so is there a way to attack the surface protein but not only that stop the machinery that's taking place in the cytoplasm and at the nucleus level to prevent um, additional 
cell division. So make the cell a, a apoptotic. So precision medicine is to look at all these, to look at the uniqueness of the disease. It doesn't have to be just cancer, but the uniqueness of the disease for the individuals and with the realization that there's diversity within the disease and that there is a series of, of pharmaceuticals that could be more, um, uh, there, there's a higher efficacy with that type of sequence and that pharmaceutical. And that way it's more targeted. The problem comes in is, is that the paradigm is that you need large random studies to test for pharmaceuticals. So what happens when you're designing treatments um, at the genomic level where it's more individuals? You don't have these large, large population sets. So the paradigm of doing one-off research or rare, um, you could have a certain type of cancer, but only 10% of, of, of individuals that have that cancer have that subtype. So is there a large enough random blind trial to, you know, to do this science, to do the study, to prove, to prove this medicine. So it's a change in paradigm and how, how sampling takes place. Um, it turns, we move away from more quantitative. I, some people call it evidence-based, but I want to just, it's a little bit too um, biased. The idea is, is that when you have low populations, low sample size, you have to move more into case studies and move more to feminological, be more qualitative. Uh, when you have large populations, you can move into the quantitative state. So we might have to have a mixed method here uh, based on certain low population sets uh, to do an adequate or standard um, clinical trial, but that's the the future of of precision medicine, and a lot of advancements are coming from the, the cancer treatment because of this this rapid change in the genome for these different cells. So that's my book, The Genomic Revolution, and you can purchase it on my website, the Reykjavik thestudioreykjavik.com on Amazon at Barnes and Nobles and on uh, iTunes which is the iBookstore I'm selling it for $9.99 so $9.99 and uh, I also have other books out there mostly in economics and finance so please if you could uh, help support my research and uh, purchase one of my books. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.